Hi, welcome to Harvest Church Podcast. We pray that as you listen today, you are blessed and encouraged. Thank you so much for listening in. If you want any more information about our ministry, we'd love you to jump onto our website, harvestaustralia.org. Have a great day. Thank you. It's really great to be back in the house. And uh, as Marty said, uh, you know, after a while you get to know you and uh, still like you. <laughs> Some of the more nervous ones will question that. I really like the tone and feel in the place. Uh, I, I like the sense of momentum and and growth, the camaraderiness that exists in the church is fairly palpable and and I think that is is great. Um, You want an environment when people walk in here, not only do they sense uh, God in the house, but they sense God in each other, you. And and that is the sort of first base of connect and uh, they sort of naturally gravitate to trust, which in some cases is quite a miracle. And, uh, but that connection then develops, and, and really that's the way church grows. Um, I'm going to be referencing Acts 6 and 7 this morning and talking about elements of the early church, at least through the life and death as it turned out. Uh, and it doesn't tell us how long... You know, between the appointment of Stephen and, and his martyrdom, um, I would guess would only be a few months at, at the most uh, because it seemed to happen fairly quickly. Uh, it's amazing how offensive a good supernatural server can be. I like... Uh, what the Spirit is doing in the place and uh, in your house. And uh, I just want to encourage you that uh, really without the Spirit, the whole place just becomes a, a shell. I, two years into our church plant, now going back you know, 27 years, 26, 27 years ago, um, <clears throat> I was on holidays and... Uh, and probably those holidays were overdue. I was a little bit burned out. And when you get a bit burned out and tired, you tend to become discouraged. And in my case, when I become discouraged, I start to question, what on earth am I doing? And um, including, you know, is Jesus real? Which is not really a, a point of discussion that you want to have publicly in the church. really helps people in their faith. <laughs> um, but I remember I was, I was on holiday, so it's a safe place to be alone and say, God, what, what is this all about? And one of my main issues that I wrestled with, and the church was growing and relatively rapidly. Um, I was told it was one of the fastest growing at the time. And... Uh, <clears throat> We've been going a few months and we're already, you know, past 150, heading up toward 250, sorry, 200. And uh, 
And I question and say, you know, is this really God, you know, or is this just sort of psychological smarts? Because I knew lots of people who have no faith whatsoever can draw a crowd. And I didn't want to draw a crowd because that kind of crowd's high maintenance. I signed up for something supernatural. God builds the church, you know, and, uh, you know, he can look after it. Um, much more easy on the rest of us. So, uh, but I was querying, was this God or was this sort of me being somewhat technically clever? And I really didn't want the technically clever answer. I was reading a, a book at the time <clears throat> by Norman, General Norman Schwarzkopf, and uh, too late the hero and uh, he was talking about his days in West Point and he said there were, there were several things that became part of his being you know, honesty, integrity um, loyalty those kinds of things and he made this little quote that says those things became my fixed stars and it just exploded in my mind and I decided I'd go for a walk on the strength of that to explore um, what, I, what I dimly but began to really see very clearly that there were some things, if I was trying to renegotiate my faith, obviously those elements were not my fixed stars. And I needed to figure out what my fixed stars are and... Uh, I'm used to navigation, I lived in Fiji, I did boats and captain boats in storms and the last thing you do is when a storm comes and you can't see what's happening around you, uh, you don't say, I'm lost and go back to your charts and your navigational aids because you can't use your navigational aids because you can't see what you're going to navigate by. And so that's not the time to query your course that's the time to stay on the course you last set until the skies become clear. You know, that can preach if, if you want. And, uh, and I figured every time I got tired, I began to renegotiate who Jesus was and, and cycle through those things that became foundational. You know, Jesus is the Son of God and he said he was. And if he wasn't what he said he was, he was a nut job. Um, and I didn't think he was a nut job because nut jobs don't say good things or do good things. C.S. Lewis lineup. And so I'd, I'd go through those and at the end of it feel a lot better and, and, uh, and then continue. But it, it occurred to me this time it wasn't just a matter of renegotiating those kinds of fixed stars, but uh, to actually have fixed stars that you didn't have to go back and renegotiate again. And I knew that was the issue. And as I walked along the road, I, I began to speak out loud. Converted a few cows, I think. Um, but I was saying stuff out loud. I'm going to say this out loud. My conversation with God was out loud. And then I began to declare. And I said, I'm, I'm making a vow right now that what I'm about to say are becoming my fixed stars. And I want to say that I am not coming back to renegotiate these again. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the son of the most high God. Jesus is my Messiah. Those kinds of things, and really only about half a dozen, and I, I apologised to him, I repented of, of allowing uh, 
a somewhat inbuilt vagary in my life that, that made me, when I was tired, revert back to questioning. So I made some declarations and some vows and I determined, you know, in the name of Jesus, these are now my fixed stars. And uh, it was curious because, um, you know, I'd like to say I was never tired again. And that's not true. When you're in ministry, there are moments where you get tireder than other times. But I never went back to renegotiate who I was or who, who Jesus was. From that time on, Jesus was a fixed star. And the church is in, overall, is in need of coming back to basics, as it were, to say, you know, these things are my fixed stars. They are non-negotiable despite the opposition and opposition with fairly masterful arguments. Uh, I'm not saying they're true arguments. They're just masterful, um, you know, against the kinds of things that we believe. But we need to be solid and know what our fixed stars are. We know that the Bible is true. That's a fixed star. We know that revelation is the revelation of Jesus. That's a fixed star. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus and he dwells within and he doesn't get offended with me and flip in and out. That's a fixed star. And I, you know, that alone, you know, if Christians would just settle on that one, Holy Spirit, you're a fixed star and even though I may fall, even though I may falter, you are not offended. That's a fixed star. And I don't know how many people renegotiate their beliefs thinking God is offended with them and God is not, a, not capable of being offended with those who believe in Jesus. And you don't have to believe in Jesus perfectly. In case you're wondering. So harking back into the, the early church... Um, you know, I think back of those 3,000 people get saved in one day. That was Pentecost. Can you imagine the pastoral requirements? <laughs> 3,000 new believers, presumably they only counted men, so they could have been many more. And later on, a large number of priests... And you can guarantee they didn't stop their priestly mentalities joining a new covenant church, which, of course, the church was wrestling with right then. Then later in Acts, a large number of priests, all zealous for the law, come in. Can you imagine the new covenant ministry department of the new church having to grapple with that? People whose identities were so wrapped up in what they did, they missed who God was in them. Then in the mix of all this, you've got a whole bunch of non-Jewish folk because they are the ones who complained about um, unequal rights, especially when it came to the food table. And, you know, if you read in between the lines here, it's no wonder they kept multiplying because they fed them all. Hey, good church growth model. Feed them. <laughs> Let me read before I... I did hear we were going for 40 minutes odd. 
so I'm, I'm still in the odd part. <laughs> Verse 1, chapter 6. During those days, the number of Jesus' followers, I'm reading from the Passion Translation, for those of you reading other uh, translations. Uh, but a complaint was brought against those who spoke Aramaic by the Greek-speaking Jews who felt their widows were being overlooked during the daily, daily distribution of food. There's another church growth principle. <laughs> the 12 apostles called a meeting of all the believers and told them, it is not advantageous for us to be pulled away from the word of God to wait on tables. Let's just pause there a moment. Because the priority that they had there and the priority that the apostles and the leadership had, we want to dig into the presence of God. We want to devote our time to prayer and the word. <clears throat> you know, pastoral duties these days, if the pastor doesn't do that plus wash cars, um, people get easily offended. Our priorities need to be so, you know, we need to encourage our leaders, this is a bonus, you know, go spend your time in prayer because we grow because you pray. And there's a whole bunch of us who are going to join you with that. They continue here, verse 3. We want you to carefully select from among yourselves seven godly men. Make sure that they are honorable, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we will give them the responsibility of this crucial ministry of serving. Good night. What they described just there, the people we'd kind of appoint as current-day apostles. Not just servers. You know, these days, the primary uh, attribute of a deacon is they can count. <laughs> I'm slightly facetious. We need perhaps one or two more requirements than that. But these guys, you don't, you don't even get to serve food unless you're full of the Holy Spirit, unless you're full of wisdom, you know, you're arcing and sparking with presence and power, and from among you guys, and there must have been quite a number of them, but they only appointed seven, we'll pick you guys, and really that job description is the job description I'd give to leaders of denominations. Food for thought. That will enable us to give our full attention to prayer and preaching the word of God. Everyone in the church loved this idea. There's another clue, by the way. <laughs> there was this collective amen whenever they sensed the spirit was on something. Amen. Their ability to say yes in unity provided more power. Does it make sense? Another clue on how to do church life. So they chose seven men. One of them was Stephen, who was known as a man full of faith and overflowing with the Holy Spirit. Along with him, they chose and named six others. Verse 6, all seven stood before the apostles who laid their hands on them and prayed for them, commissioning them to this ministry. Keep in mind what the ministry was, was to devote themselves to serving daily food to those who needed it. Very simple, very basic, almost menial in, in our own imaginations. And yet the priorities were they needed guys who were full, overflowing of the Spirit, full of wisdom, 
those, those kinds of attributes just to serve food. It's no wonder the church grew. You know, we're, we're so individualistic that, you know, we can't wait to go through our courses and, you know, speak in tongues and learn healing and we present ourselves as, you know, three-stripe healers, speak in tongue, anointed. And we kind of graduate up some imaginary ladder of hierarchy. Yet their description of basic but spirit-empowered servers was such that they pick the best. Verse 7, God's word reigns supreme. <laughs> There's another clue. And kept spreading, another one. The number of Jesus' followers in Jerusalem quickly grew and increased by the day. Now we've got this horrible thing called a week. And we meet once a week. Do you know how frustrating that is for a preacher who wants to cover some ground, but we've only got 52 weeks in a year? These guys met daily. They had a party daily, and the Spirit showed up. Even a great number of Jewish priests became believers and were obedient to the faith. And it comes on to Stephen. Stephen, who was a man full of grace and supernatural power, performed many astonishing signs and wonders and mighty miracles among the people. Now that's a deacon I want. In fact, I'd like to be that. Keep in mind that these guys were appointed to serve food to widows. And yet they were doing these mighty deeds. Imagine what our churches would become if every single person, because we're all called to serve, aren't we? Serve supernaturally. The expectation is, I'm a server here in Harvest. Good name, by the way. And because of that, I need to be full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom, overflowing with power, and signs and wonders and miracles are going to happen because that's expected of me now at Harvest Church. Are you the pastor? No, I'm not the pastor. Are you the visiting apostle? No, I'm not the visiting apostle. I'm just a deacon. I just serve. Oh, well. Are all servers like you? Certainly hope so. <laughs> if you came into a church where the service was supernatural, would you want to stay? Oh, you bet. There's a clue. Sometimes we forget that supernatural basics are better than the best ambitions. So here's this Stephen who, you know, pops up almost out of nowhere. Well, everybody sort of popped up out of nowhere back then. There wasn't time for a heritage. You got filled with the spirit and you looked around and there was only one place you could join them and there was this fervent group of people who we met daily and uh, you just couldn't get enough of what was happening. 
So Stephen joins that group and, uh, you know, in the job search, um, his name comes up as one of the top guys and uh, he's supernatural and full of the spirit. He's one who does signs and wonders and, and miracles. I'd like a whole church load of those kinds of characters. But whenever you're doing something that's full on for God and full on for the Spirit, you're going to get opposition. That's guaranteed. And without leaning into this too much, sometimes the opposition of just tiredness is actually spiritual warfare. And looking back, I allowed by some of my vagary and weariness to allow the enemy to come in be a voice of rationality which said whatever I was doing was not of faith. And I had to shut down the ability or the choice to renegotiate. There's these guys who, in your version, probably is called the synagogue of freedmen. Um, the Aramaic word is libertines. They, they think they might have followed a a sort of Roman god called Liber, and uh, their main attraction was drunkenness and promiscuity. In other words, we're not beholden to, to any rules or regulations or lifestyle constructs. And these are the guys who started to come against Stephen. They all confronted Stephen to argue with him. But the Holy Spirit... Remember, he was full of the Holy Spirit. You know, he was, he was sparking and arcing. But the Holy Spirit gave Stephen remarkable wisdom to answer them. His words were prompted by the Holy Spirit, and they could not refute what he said. You imagine a church load of people full of supernatural servers who, hear me correctly, don't care what they're going to say because they don't practice that, but depend on the Holy Spirit to say what's right at the right time. People can't gainsay that. And these so-called libertines couldn't gainsay it, so what they couldn't do by argument, they, they did by direct accusational assault. And so they bring false accusations <clears throat> And if you read what they, what they are, um, it's sort of based a little bit on, on fact. Um, we heard this man speak blasphemy against Moses and God. Well, Stephen never said anything against God. He actually didn't say anything against Moses, except as he confessed to the, the leaders at that time, um, God does not live in buildings made by men. One of the accusations, he speaks against this temple. He was just stating what was happening in the new covenant. God does not limit himself to physical buildings. He lodges within every believer. One after another, false witnesses stepped forward and accused Stephen, saying, this man never stopped denigrating our temple and our Jewish law, for we heard him teach that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the traditions and customs that Moses handed down to us. He was partially right. 
the new covenant demolishes the old. And Jesus is a far superior and singular authority and totally displaces Moses. Read Hebrews in case you're wondering. In the past, we used to listen to the prophets, paraphrasing here, Hebrews 1, but in these, these days, we listen to Jesus. Or as Brian Simmons liked to say in the Passion Translation, in the past, God spoke to the, the prophets. Today, he speaks in the language of son. A whole nother paradigm. Every member of the Supreme Council <clears throat> focused his gaze on Stephen, for right in front of their eyes, excuse me, right in front of their eyes, while being falsely accused, his face glowed as though he had the face of an angel. That's some deacon. That makes me want to re-examine myself because I, I think other thoughts when I'm accused. Very lucid ones. But I can't say they might make, my, might make my face shine like an angel. Working on it. So here we have this guy who is overflowing with the spirit, humbly serving, brought up and arraigned and falsely accused. And in that situation, his face glows. I can guarantee this, that if we have a church half filled with these kinds of folk, you won't be able to keep the people away. Then we move into chapter 7, and it's a sort of a longish chapter, and I, I read it many, many times, and, and more often than not, I get stuck in the history lesson and, uh, and then sort of glance by the main point of Stephen's sort of long discourse here and, and miss some of it. And we don't have time this morning to go, you know, blow by blow through his detail, so we'll highlight Verse 1 of chapter 7, the high priest asked, are these accusations true? Stephen could have said no, or he could have said no, but, or he could have said no, yes, but. What you're actually saying is false, but Jesus is, and essentially he, he does that in a history narrative. And he starts in, my fellow Jews and fathers, listen to me. God, the God of glory, appeared to our ancestor Abraham while he was living in Iraq before he moved to Haran in Syria. And he, and he goes on, describes God asking Abraham to move to a place that he will show him. Leave your father and your father's house and go to a place that I'll show you. So what Abraham does is pick up his whole family, including his father, and they move and they camp in this town until his father dies. 
Then the story goes on, talking about the descendants, talking about uh, Jacob and the others, talking about Joseph, talking about the opposition Joseph had and the slavery that finally enveloped the, the children of Israel. And uh, so he keeps going on. And then finally Moses comes onto the scene supernaturally again as a rescued baby and uh, gets taken into Pharaoh's court, gets educated, uh, learns the ways of leadership in Egypt, but he, he has this sense that he is supposed to be the redeemer of his people, which presumes, of course, someone told him that they were his people. So he decides he's going to act, but his actions are interference, and he kills somebody, and then he meets a couple of Jewish guys scrapping it out, and one of them accuses him, what? He says, you're going to come and do to us what you did to the Egyptian yesterday. And, and so Moses gets his I'm called to the wilderness feeling. And he disappears for 40 years. God intervenes at the burning bush and speaks to him out of that and recommissions him and then sends him back to Egypt Verse 35, so God sent back to Egypt, talking about Moses, the man our people rejected and refused to recognize. And of course, that is one of the highlight conclusions that he has to each of these historical situations. Then he goes in and talks about, well, these days God doesn't live in, in man-made buildings but then he comes to this conclusion of verse 51. So I've, I've already gone through quite a bit. And what he is describing on the way through isn't so much just our, you know, the way God led the people. But his main point was is how despite God's leading, the people resisted and delayed God. They held God up. The people could have been rescued out of Egypt a lot earlier than they were. They could have left the, the wilderness journey and got in much earlier than they did and they wasted another 40 years. And so the point Stephen was making at each point in our history, and I'll go on here, why would you be so stubborn as to close your hearts and ears to me? You are always opposing the Holy Spirit, just like your forefathers. This is one way to win Pharisee influence, you know, friends. And uh, I have a notion right at this point, Stephen knew that this was, this was his last, last chat. Because he gets stuck into them. Which prophet was not persecuted and murdered by your ancestors? Name one. They killed them all, even the ones who prophesied long ago of the coming of the righteous one. And now you follow in their steps and have become his betrayers and murderers. In case you're wondering whether I think you're guilty, guilty, capital letters. You've been given the law by the visitation of angels, but you have not obeyed it. In other words, you've brought false testimony against me here. You have also um, done precisely the opposite of what the law says and you still think you're God's people. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were overtaken with violent rage, filling their souls, and then they gnashed their teeth at him. A reasonably significant manifestation. 
If you're sort of wondering there and you're into deliverance ministry, you would have had a whole room full. But Stephen, overtaken with great faith. Oh boy, there's another clue for a great church. Was full of the Holy Spirit. Yay, amen, ditto. He fixed his gaze into the heavenly realm and saw the glory and splendor of God and Jesus who stood up at the right hand of God. Pause there for a moment. Because whenever Jesus is spoken about, usually, where is he? Seated. Sitting down at the right hand, that place of authority that he'd been granted. And by the way, Brackett's vision says we're there with him. But Jesus is seated, usually. Stephen looks up and he sees Jesus get up and stand. Next verse Look, Stephen said, I can see heaven, the heavens opening and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God to welcome me home. I think Jesus kind of loved Stephen. I think he loved him anyway and loved his faithfulness and loved his serving and loved his attitude and really just the Holy Spirit did what Stephen needed at the right moments, including bringing him a revelation of his Lord just standing up. Welcome home, Stephen. Certainly makes martyrdom less daunting. And I think that was a supernatural gift to him, seeing Jesus do that. But it's a wonderful characterization of Jesus, and he's the Jesus we serve, and he's the Jesus who is coming back for us, and he is the one who, who will pull out every stop to show how much he loves us. That knowledge, that revelation, that's another clue of how to grow a great church point to him. He who is willing to stand for a supernatural server is also the one who is going to come in a blaze of glory on our behalf. His accusers covered their ears and with their hands uh, covered their ears with their hands and screamed at the top of their lungs to drown out his voice. Yeah, I would say that was a demonic manifestation. Demonized leaders. Then they pounced on him and threw him outside the city walls to stone him, his accusers one by one placing their outer garments at the feet of a young man named Saul of Tarshish. And as they hurled stone after stone at him, Stephen prayed, O Lord Jesus, accept my spirit into your presence. He crumpled to his knees and shouted in a loud voice, Our Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And then he died. You'd kind of expect the church to be shaken up. They were sort of shaken out. But the church grew. The devil, I think, had a premature day of excitement. 
when he thought he'd shut down a supernatural server, little realizing that someone else got a commission who was participating in Stephen's death. The devil lost big time. I often, less so these days because I recognize much in me that is pretty much like the history of the Israelites and because I, th- I think and why, why did you just resist so much? Why, why did you get so stupid there and there and there and there? Why didn't you see that this would hinder your own deliverance? And I think when Jesus said, I'm going to come back really quickly, I know in the scheme of things, 2,000 years in eternity is but a drop, but somehow I don't think God intended that he would need to wait 2,000 years before the second coming. I wonder if God still waits for us and in the waiting for us to cooperate he slows down his schedule. Just a thought. Why is it when the church started with just a, almost call it the big bang of Pentecost, coming of the Holy Spirit and radical transformation, anointing and you know the story of these deacons that came out. I heard one lady actually in my Earshot. I don't want to be a Stephen. I don't want to be a martyr. And I couldn't help it. I went back and said, excuse me, there were six others didn't die. Not to make a point of it, but, you know, when you get a vision of Jesus standing up to meet you, pa, that's a good way to go. <laughs> but I, I wonder why... Well, I know it's warfare and I know people are people and I'm one of them. Why is it that we we slow down on rapid obedience and deployment used by the Spirit? Why is the church just in in that first early period, you know, the first maybe 150 years, was so active. Why was it, it seems, in history, and not all the supernatural died out when the apostles died, but there was major momentum shift downwards? Why did it take until the 1900s for a resurgence of the doctrine and teaching and the practice and the receiving of the Holy Spirit to come back into the church. And and even then, it met severe opposition from those who had vested interest in the status quo. It makes me wonder, did did we slow down God's design over those years? Was our recalcitrance and opposition to grace, for example... Um, 
reason for <clears throat> the slowdown, and we're still fighting the battle about grace. New Testament is just unequivocally clear that we're now in the new covenant and we're now under the governance of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and there is no need for Moses, even though Moses gets honoured, we sing his song. But the church still battles that and somehow we still have to balance grace with law. If you want to get me nearly manifesting, just suggest that. Let me illustrate. The law very explicitly says priests, and particularly high priests, can only come from the tribe of Levi. Hebrews talks about Jesus coming from the tribe of Judah. So why, in Jesus' priesthood, do we get grace, but somehow we've got to dilute its intoxication by a priesthood that can only come from Moses and thereby neutralizing the ministry of Jesus. So why do we need to balance this scandalous, as some talk, scandal of grace, the ministry of Jesus, and balance it with a ministry that is not of Jesus. Why, on one hand, do we have... God is really pleased by by faith, and the explicit verse, it says, and the law is not of faith. So why do we have to balance faith with unbelief to make it more palatable? I think in that area alone, we get to slow down God. Just a thought. And we're all pressing in, rightly so. You guys are great pressers. Or presser in us. (laughs) And I love that about you. A little bit like the Bereans, you want to dig deep and you want to make sure that these things are scripturally so. And that's commendable. You're pressing into the Holy Spirit as hard as you can go. At least you're singing about that. Songs are wonderful. They seduce you into saying things you might not have said by yourself. But God remembers that. Remember, you sung that. You're coming with me. And uh, So in that sense, I really want to commend you, but I also want to stir you because the church, the church overall, and the church as it's defined by what's coming in our near future needs to have supernatural service. Really. People whose faces glow in the dark and when it gets darkest, they glow brightest. You're not going to keep people away from that kind of church. 
And it means also embracing where the Spirit is taking us. And in some cases, and, and it's scriptural, we need to be scriptural. But there are some decisions we make that are really of faith. <clears throat> Which means you make that decision because you know it's from the Holy Spirit and there's no other visible means of support. But you step into that and you step into it together because the Spirit manifests himself best when we are together, together. I can guarantee this, that as we learn to serve and serve supernaturally and bright-faced about things, the momentum generated by a unity of devotion and service empowered by the Spirit will not and cannot be stopped. You're going to grow like blazes, which means you're on fire. And people will be a little bit frightened to come to church because... They know they can't come to spectate. They'll be caught up or caught out. I like those options. You can guarantee the Jerusalem church back after Ananias and Sapphira, which said suddenly, you know, in the fear of God just got a hold of them all and they grew. Wasn't exactly seeker-friendly. That certainly was spirit-drawn. That's the kind of church we're heading into in the future. We need it now. What we need is a group of people who are on a high tower and, and they dive and then ask the spirit, shall I jump? You're already on the way. And you hope there's water in there by the time you get there. <laughs> John Wimber used to say, faith is spelt R-A-S-K, risk. And Stephen and his friends didn't care about the risk. They absolutely had no shadow of a doubt, I believe, that the spirit had formed in them this bright light of a fixed star and Jesus ratified that by revelation by standing up and saying to him, welcome home. Amen. Let's stand, shall we? Let's just raise a hand, shall we? Father, we just want to declare by the raising of our hands that we put a banner up and say, Jesus is Lord. Holy Spirit, I ask that you'll continue to grow and bless, mobilize, empower, and bring joy to this church. Lord, I thank you that they are advertised as harvest church. And Father, I ask for that capacity of supernatural service 
undiluted, no hesitation. We're just, we're leaping in to where the Spirit's going. And I ask that that will become a characteristic of this place more and more. Bless the leadership. They serve well. Bless all the other servers because they too serve well and we all need to serve supernaturally. And Father, I pray particularly that you'll just bring um, revelational insight uh, into both Marty and Karen. So there's a boldness saying, this is the way, let's all leap in. And we'll figure out how after. (laughs) But there's a one-hearted unity that we're not tempted to question and hinder what the Spirit is doing. And I ask for a one-hearted fireplace that allows the Spirit to be the Spirit, Jesus to be Jesus, and the Father who he is. So in the name of Jesus, I bless you and I bless Harvest and I bless all that you are associated with. I bless the Persian church because I was with them last night. Bless them, love them to bits. And Father, bless this place and may this place be a place full of wisdom, signs and wonders and the revelation of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.